Good morning. Jesus, we just thank you this morning. We just thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've already done and just how you've met with us this morning and how you're going to continue to meet with us. I just ask this morning as we look at your word that you would just inspire and awaken our hearts. That you would just saturate every one of my words this morning. That they would be your words. That you would just open our hearts to receive from you. Jesus, you're so worthy. You're so good. You're so glorious. We just can't say it enough. We can't praise you enough for how worthy you are. This morning, we just remember everything you've done for us. We give you praise and we give you thanks for that. We thank you this morning that whether whether we've known you all our lives or not, whether whether today is the first day that we're encountering you or whether we've known you for years, that you've never stopped pursuing us. You've never stopped drawing us to yourself. I just thank you, Jesus. Amen. How many of you know that the, the church that Jesus started, you know Jesus started the church? Just making sure. <laughs> the church that Jesus started was meant to do incredibly great things. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus didn't start a building? He's not like, all right, these are the building plans. We're going to build the greatest building ever. The church that Jesus started, he, he told them, his, his disciples, he had 12 disciples, and he said, go out and make disciples of nations. And these weren't world leaders. These weren't government people. These were just fishermen, tax collectors. These were your average, average first century people. We often read scripture and we're like, wow. Well, maybe not Peter, because we look at Peter and we're like, wow, he messed up a lot. <laughs> or maybe we look at Paul. No, we can't take Paul either, because he persecuted the church first. So I don't, I don't know who we take, but we look, at, we look at these people who wrote the Bible, and, and we think, 
oh man, they just really had it together. That, that somehow they were, they were greater or, or more spiritual than your average person. And so then, therefore, when Jesus commissions them, it's not really such a big deal. But I want you to imagine for a second, if you were in that situation, average, regular person. I'm not saying you're average. Don't, don't get offended. Just a regular person. And Jesus says to you, you're going to heal the sick, you're going to cast out demons, you're going to raise the dead. And he says, I want you to go baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them what I've commanded you. Make disciples of nations. That is just as relevant to you today as it was to them 2,000 years ago. Do you realize that? that? That Jesus didn't start something that was just supposed to be mediocre. And you actually see this. If you look at history, you see how what he started exploded across, around the world. That something like within the 500 years or so, it went from this group of 12 persecuted believers to one of the greatest, the, one, the largest belief, belief systems in the world at the time. And so this morning, I want us to look at how do we build something for the long haul? How do we actually build something together that is worth building? Something that's not just mediocre, something that doesn't just, well, we do it because we've always done it that way. But how do we actually build something that's worthwhile? We are are called as the church to build something that lasts. We're called to build something that the generations that follow us will actually maybe benefit more than we benefit from them. That our children and our grandchildren, that we're, we're actually called to plant seeds today that our children and our grandchildren will experience the harvest. Isn't that incredible that the choices we make today can actually build something for the long haul? So I want to ask you, what are we choosing today? What are we sowing into, investing in today? You see, so often we can try and avoid battle. We can try and avoid uh, fighting. And I'm not talking about fighting with each other. I'm not talking about fighting with your spouse. I'm talking about fighting for something that's worthwhile. And we can, we can feel like, well, I'm just going to avoid that. There's opposition there, so I'm just going to stay away from that area. And what it actually leads us to is it leads us to mediocrity. It leads us to to staying comfortable. And quite honestly, that's a slow death. And so instead of taking hold of what Jesus has promised us, taking hold of what he's asked us to do, we're like, no, actually, I'd rather just stay comfortable. It's, It's too uncomfortable to grab hold of the words of Jesus.
It's too hard to fight for what God says. It's too hard to fight to do things with excellence. But what about fighting for what matters? What about fighting, doing battle with the enemy? To actually live victoriously. To not just settle for what we have today, but to fight for something greater. Turn with me to Nehemiah. So you're like, what? There's a book called Nehemiah? Page 310. I just want to give you a little bit of the historical background of the book of Nehemiah. Uh, I believe the book of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually originally written together. They were, they were held together. Um, and basically what happened is, is after David, uh, the kings of Israel kind of got worse and worse. And uh, God promised through his prophets that he was going to send an invading army to, to conquer them and lead them into exile. And so uh, the Babylonian king came through and he wiped out Israel. He pillaged them. He, he took them captive, destroyed their cities, and then carried off the remnant of the people into exile in Babylon. And they were in exile for about 70 years. And that's where you get the story of maybe you've heard of it, the, the story of Daniel in the lion's den under King Nebuchadnezzar. That all happened during that period and uh, other nations were sent to resettle in what was the nation of Israel. And then after Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, Persians came in and they conquered the Babylonian kingdom and took control of everything. And uh, it was in 538 uh, BC, the king of Persia, King Cyrus, decreed to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. And so uh, a man named Zerubbabel goes back to Jerusalem with uh, some some of the, the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. And then in five, or sorry, in 458, between 458 and 457 BC, Ezra, who was a scribe who knew the law, went back with another group of Jewish people. And then in 445, there was a man named Nehemiah, and he was a cupbearer for the king Artaxerxes. And he hears about the condition of Jerusalem and the, the, the nation where his ancestors are buried. And it, it, it so grieves him that the following year he's serving wine to the king and the king looks at him and says, you look so distraught, but you don't look sick. What is the matter? And so Nehemiah prays and, and he goes and he talks to the king and he asks him to, if, if he would allow him to go back to Israel to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He has, he has this vision of, of what the city should be like and he sees the current condition. And it so breaks his heart. And he goes to the king and, and the king grants him permission to go back to Israel and to rebuild. He, he issues a decree to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. You see, if we are going to build for the long haul, if we're going to build something that's actually worth building, it starts with a vision. 
And at a glance, many people would look at that and say, well, that's just impractical. I mean, if you, if you look at Nehemiah's situation, he is in exile in a different nation under a king who doesn't, who would be considered a pagan king. He's not a Jewish king. You say, what, what chance is there that he would be allowed to go back and rebuild the city? And so Nehemiah, the, the king issues the decree and, and uh, gives, he says to Nehemiah, you can have what you need to, to make this happen. So Nehemiah goes back to Israel and he comes into Jerusalem and, and he takes stock of the situation. Before he tells anyone why he's there, he just goes around and looks at everything that's happened. It says he, walk, he goes around the walls at, at night so that nobody knows what he's doing. And then in Nehemiah chapter 2, he calls the people together and he says, look, this city is in ruins. Let's rebuild it. Let's start by rebuilding the wall. And then Nehemiah chapter 3, it says this. It says they built side by side. There was this sense of unity that, that Nehemiah had now cast a vision for the people and they could actually move forward in unity. And, and it talks about goldsmiths and merchants and uh, perfume makers. These, these weren't expert builders. These weren't building contractors. But that wasn't an excuse for them. They didn't look and be like, well, we're not experts. We'll leave that to the contractors. All right, we should go get a quote from them. Instead, it says that everyone built side by side, and it, it actually outlines who built which section and, and talks about how they built side by side. There was a sense of unity around this building that was to take place. And we're going to pick this up in uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 28. is what it says. It says, above the horse gate, the priests repaired the wall. Each one repaired the section immediately across from his own house. Next, Zadok, son of Immer, also rebuilt the wall across from his own house. And beyond him, Shemiah, son of Shechaniah, the gatekeeper of the east gate. Next, Hananiah, son of Shelomi, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zelaph, repaired another section. While Meshulam, son of Berikai, rebuilt the wall across from where he lived. Malkiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the wall as far as the housing from the temple servants and merchants across from the inspection gate. Then he continued as far as the upper room at the corner. And what, what caught me in that verse is that each one started where they were at. Each one looked at the section of wall directly in front of their house. The thing that was most relevant to them. And they start building there. Now they didn't, they didn't have one group who was like, well, we're going to rebuild um, the uh, merchant quarters and we're going to rebuild the, uh, the market and we're going to rebuild, you know, we, we need a bathhouse because everyone's getting a little stinky, so we'll rebuild that. No, they, they all looked at the wall and they said, we're going to rebuild the wall and we're going to start with what's right in front of us. They had a common vision. They they recognized that if the wall didn't get 
rebuilt. See, the, the, the building of the wall preceded the order of the city. The, the city was still in ruins. If you were to look at it, you'd be like, well, why are they rebuilding a wall around a bunch of rubble? Like, it wasn't like there were all these houses and then they built the wall around it to protect it. It was like everything inside was a mess. And they chose to rebuild the wall because they knew that if they rebuilt the wall, that, or sorry, they knew that without the wall, the enemy could just come in and just wreak havoc on them. He could come in and have control over what they were building. And so they started with the wall and they started with the piece that was right in front of them. And we're going to continue with the story, Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So there's, uh, in Nehemiah, there's three people who, they hear about Nehemiah coming and, and they're just upset. They're ticked off that he would come and rebuild the city. And so they are, they're, they, they start off just by kind of insulting them and being like, oh, what are, what are they ever going to get done? And then this is what it says in verse 6 of chapter 4. It says, at last the wall was completed, half the height, half completed to half its height around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sanballat and Tobiah of the Arabs, Amorite, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the word, that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the walls of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. And then the people of Judah began to complain. The workers are getting tired and there is so much rubble to move. We will never be able to build a wall by ourselves. Meanwhile, our enemies were saying, before they know what's happening, we will swoop down on them and kill them and end their work. The Jews who live near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. So I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords and spears and bows. And then as I looked over the situation, I called together the nobles and the rest of the people and said to them, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord who is great and glorious and who fights for, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But from then on, only half my men worked, while the other half stood guard with spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. The leaders stationed themselves behind the people of Judah, who were building the wall. The laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load, and one hand holding a weapon. All the builders had a sword belted to their side. The trumpeter set, stayed with me to sound the alarm. Division thrives when we forget our purpose. But unity thrives when we are armed in prayer. Division thrives when we forget our purpose. But unity thrives when we are armed in prayer. You see, that as the people came together, the, the, the wall was not their main goal. That's just where they were starting. And, and 
everything seemed to be going well. They, in fact, in, in the story of Nehemiah, it actually says it took them only 52 days to rebuild the wall around the entire city. That's how enthusiastic, that's how passionate they were about this rebuilding. But so they, they had raised the wall up to half its height all the way around the city. And the enemy wasn't happy about it. The enemy came against them and said, we are going to kill you because if we kill you, if we can take you out, we can stop the work, the great work that you're called to do. And do you notice in this story, it wasn't until the attack of the enemy that the people started complaining. Everything was going well until the enemy started to attack. How often is it for us when we are called to build something and then the enemy comes against us and he wants to attack us and our go-to is to start complaining? Anybody? Nobody wants to admit it. See, if we're going to build anything that is worth building, the enemy is going to try and tear it down. He's, but he's not going to do it by, by tearing down what we're building. He's going to do it by attacking individuals. Because he knows if he can attack you, he can stop the work that you're called to. If he can sidetrack, if he can distract you, he can keep you from doing what God has called you to do. And it can be so easy for us in those times to, to then take up complaining Maybe it's complaining against our, our brothers and sisters, the ones who are supposed to work beside us. Oh, if only they would do more, we wouldn't feel so over, overburdened. You notice that when, when Nehemiah addresses the people, this is what he says. He says, don't be afraid of the enemy. Remember the Lord, who is great and glorious. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Notice he doesn't say fight against your brothers. Some of us, when the enemy attacks, the first thing we do is like, we're going to take out our brother. Because obviously, he or she is the problem. Instead of directing our attention outwards, To actually arm ourselves to defend against the attack of the enemy. You notice also that, that in this passage, they, they didn't say, oh man, they're attacking, we better go defar- defend, not defarned, defend our homes. Right? So we're going to abandon the work, we're going to go back to the place that is ours protect our families and our homes, because they knew if the wall was fortified, that their homes were safe. What if instead of, in those moments where we feel like we're under attack, instead of giving up, instead of saying, well, that's it, I'm going to go back to where I'm safe. What if we would actually, in those moments, arm ourselves? That we would shore up the low places, we would stand with the those who are feeling under attack. That we would actually fight for one another.
See, the enemy knows if he can cause division, if he can cause infighting, he can stop the work that we're called to. If he can direct your anger towards somebody else who is on your team, We're no longer directing it against the enemy. We're no longer fighting to score that goal, to win that game. But we're fighting against our teammate. We're going to look at two passages this morning. One is out of Nehemiah, the other one's out of Ephesians. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. It says, Now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. Put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the evil strategies of the accuser. Your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are a power class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides you so you're protected as you confront the slanderer. For you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. So often when, when we feel like we're under attack, Maybe we feel alone. Maybe we feel overwhelmed. Maybe we just feel like life has just gotten to us. And we look for someone to blame. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it is so common right now to blame someone else for our problems. Here's the thing. If if we're going to blame somebody else for our problems, we're never going to solve those problems. I guarantee you from now until the day you die, you can blame somebody else. For everything that happens to you. But it's just going to keep happening. It's in recognizing who the enemy is. That we can actually direct our attention where it needs to go. You see, we are called to build something together as a church. When Jesus talks about church, he's not talking about our idea of a building that we come to. Okay? The the Greek word that is actually used is ecclesia. And ecclesia is a movement of people. This is the definition. It says, a gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place. An assembly. An assembly of the people convened at the public place of council for the purpose of deliberating. Those who anywhere in a city, village, constitute such a company and are united into one body. An ecclesia is a people coming together for a purpose. 
A people called out by God to come together. It's a movement. And what's happened is over the years, it's actually, we've mistranslated this word to, to the German word Kirche. And Kirche means a house of worship, a building that we come to. See, here's the thing, church. If we are building a building, then Jesus is only declared in one place. The only day that matters is how we act on Sunday when we walk in the building. The most important thing is attendance. doesn't matter where our heart's at. It just matters that we show up. It means that the only place that people encounter Jesus is in a singular location and when you walk through the doors of the building. But if we are building a movement, if we are building an ecclesia, a movement of people called by God, then everywhere we go, we declare Jesus. Everywhere we go becomes an encounter waiting to happen for, for people to meet with Jesus. If we are building a movement where Jesus is made famous, then it's not just on Sunday, it's through every part of our lives that people can encounter Jesus. If we're building a building, then, then our relationships and our, the way we parent and the way we work on our marriages and the way that we interact at work don't really matter because we want, just want to get people in the building. But if we are building a movement, then every one of those things is a way to display the nature of God to the world. If we are building a building, then unity really has no impact. Because as long as you show up, it doesn't matter if we kill each other once you get in the doors. But if we are building a movement, then unity is a necessity. If we're building a building, then attendance is the highest priority. Just showing up, filling the seats. But if we're building a people, then the presence is the highest priority. Because we know that in order to do, to move the way we are called to move, we need his presence with us. Therefore, things like attendance actually become a byproduct of his presence because I want to be obedient to his presence, to who he is, to what he says. It's an outflow of, of desiring unity and wanting to, to meet with Jesus. Then I know that I need other people and we need to come together. Not just to fill seats, but because it's part of a movement. I believe we are called, not just as this church, but I'm talking about a bigger concept of church. Not just people who meet in this building, but people who meet throughout the Gulf Islands, across Canada, around the world, moving together. We say, well, how do we do that? How do we build something like that? And I think if we look at the story of Nehemiah, it starts with what's in front of you. You start with what's in front of your house. What is God calling you to build right in front of your house? How is he calling you to build unity that's right in front of you? 
How is he calling you to reach your neighbor right in front of you? We need to build a movement, not a building. A movement of people who live like Jesus and put Jesus on display to the world. That make him famous. You see, if we're going to build in unity, if we're going to build anything, it has to be built in unity. If we're going to build in unity, we're going to take this right down to something really practical right in front of us. Unity is built in prayer. Maybe you've heard, I don't know if you've ever heard this, but there's a lot of people who talk about marriage and they say, if you want a strong marriage, pray together. Well, guess what? If we want a strong church, pray together. If you want strong relationships, pray together. Pray together with your friends. Pray together with your kids. Pray together with your family. And and I'm not talking about the kind of prayer where we line up and we're like, all right, God, I've got this list of, like a a Christmas wish list. Right? Anybody ever prayed like that? I have. God, I need this and this and this, and can you take care of this? And if you have time, this and this and this and this and... Sorry, God, I gotta go. Right? That's our prayer time. Or the prayers where it's like, God, everything's so terrible. Why? My life is just falling apart. Anybody ever prayed like that? Yeah? The complaining prayer? I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I'm not talking where we come with a list, and I'm not talking where we come in complaining. In Nehemiah chapter 4, we just read this. It says, so I placed armed guards. Verse 13, so I placed armed guards behind the lowest parts of the wall in the exposed areas. And I stationed the people to stand guard by families armed with swords, spears, and bows. And then in verses 17 and 18, It says that the laborers carried on their work and they built with one hand and they carried a sword in the other hand. And in Ephesians that we just read a little bit further, this is what it says in in verse 17 and 18. It says, Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies. And pay attention to this. It says, Take the mighty, razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. Pray passionately in the Spirit so as you constantly intercede with every form of prayer at all times. Pray the blessing of God upon all believers. See, in Nehemiah, we have this picture of, of the builders. They didn't pray and then, or sorry, they didn't fight and then build. But they were ready at all times to fight and build. One in each hand. They had a sword in one hand and they were building with the other. And I saw that and I thought, what an incredible picture of what we want to do as a church. Let's build together with one hand, but let's hold the sword of the word of God in the other hand. 
Now this, this, this word of God that it talks about here is the Greek word rhema. And it means the spoken word of God. The utterance of the Holy Spirit. Do you know where we encounter the spoken word? We encounter it in, by reading the Bible, but we encounter it in prayer when we actually take time to listen. Where we come and we meet with God and we say, God, I'm here and yeah, I have some issues, but just talk to me. Tell me what you're saying. Give me your heart. Show me how you feel about these things. That that is the sword that we take up to fight off the lies and the attacks of the enemy. I've actually heard it said that this sword, uh, that, that in this passage Paul is equating spiritual principles to the uh, armor of a Roman centurion. He said that, uh, what, one of the things I heard is that this sword wasn't just used for attacking, but it was actually used for digging out arrows. That when an arrow would get through past your shield and would hit you, you would use the sword to actually work the arrow out. And it's, it's exactly that. It's the spoken word of God that destroys lies. The lies that have hit you, that have distracted you, that you work out. You get rid of them. And so if we're going to actually take up our sword, if we're going to build unity together to something that's worth building, church, it starts with prayer. It starts with us coming together. I'm not talking about your, pre- your breakfast. That's your prayer breakfast. I'm not talking about your prayer before breakfast, before you sit down and have your Cheerios. Awesome, that's great. I'm talking about a people united in prayer who gather together to pray big, bold prayers. So where do we start? Let's pray big prayers together. Prayers that that we need God's perspective on. Let's take time to, to just come and just listen to Him. To shore up the low places in prayer. Let's take time to pray into His vision for our church. For what the common purpose is that we are building into. Ask the Holy Spirit to show you what is right in front of your house for you to start building. Start praying bold, courageous prayers. Prayers that actually cost you something. Start praying for the salvation of the Gulf Islands. Start praying for each other. 